1912, and after three sprawling Olympiads of cheating, treachery, treason, and strychnine, it was time to clean up the Olympic Games. Enter the Swedes and a slick new look for the Games. One which looks suspiciously similar to Athens 1906, but one that could be called truly international, with rules, functional stadiums, a couple of deaths, a whole ten more lady competitors, electronic timing contraptions and horses. Also, and not at all suspicious of awarding of a gold medal to the president of the IOC. Welcome to Stockholm. Joining us on the 1912 Olympipod is Laura Tiedla from Estonia, a former judoist or judoka or judo player, whatever you call them, work for the International Sport and Culture Association. She is an IOC Sport and Active Society Commission member, and she lives in Stockholm, so she is the perfect person for this podcast. Laura, is there anything there that I missed in your incredible resume? That was quite astonishing. I would say judoka is the correct term to use for a judo player. So yeah, I think that was all. I I have a world championship medal uh, in a really weird wrestling. That's like Uzbekistan wrestling called Kurash. That had only like 10 countries competing or something. But I can say I have a world championship medal at home, which is kind of cool. And like a bathrobe, like an Uzbeki traditional blue and gold bathrobe. So those were the awards given to me yeah that was all that's incredible like you should be leading every conversation with us i really mention it because it's like a very small traditional sport and it was kind of like you go to a judo competition but then they also have this wrestling competition and they're kind of similar so why not take part it was my first time competing at it this is kind of the story that you hear in this early stage olympics or something like that yeah oh my god tell us more I mean, we need no, to, this, no this more, could be the whole podcast no more sports secrets like that that was the only one. Oh my god that's amazing so wait that was in uzbekistan <laughs> uzbeki uh, national wrestling yeah we should put it in the olympics maybe that would be my recommendation we will get to that then i can have my comeback <laughs> exactly well we will have an opportunity for you to make a big change in the olympic program and hurt a big part of the Olympic family very soon. But first, let's talk about 1912 and Stockholm. And Ruth, you said there that it was slick, that it reminded you of Athens, that it was not a complete disaster like previous Olympics. Why was that? Well, we decided that, you know what? Let's cut it down from the five months. Let's just do it in two weeks. And you know what? It, it, it worked. It worked. And also, something that uh, Stockholm did very well was that they reached out to other nations to actually come, not just as athletes, but also as spectators. So when I said it was the first truly international games, you know, it, it was the first games where we aren't saying, oh, there were 12 competitors, 11 from the host nation. We, we actually started getting quite a good representation mm. across the board. Uh, the first time we had all five continents, right? Yes, this time Chile did compete. And <laughs> 1896, <laughs> they definitely didn't. <laughs> this time they did compete. It wasn't just this, I don't know, uh, 12% chance due to some uh, photo technology that Chile might have had an athlete. Thank you very much. It was an actual athlete from Chile competing this time. So, uh, yeah, we also had... Uh, Asia uh, represented fairly well, all five continents, as you said, and it was organized very, very well. There was a lot of people on board from the Swedish royal family, the aristocracy, the military, and it was funded partly as well by the government uh, through the lottery. So they kind of sneakily did it. They didn't really tell the people they were funding it, but through the lottery, they funded the Olympic Games and they had plenty of organizational experience as well, seeing as the uh, Nordic Games were quite a regular feature in Scandinavian life. Uh, that was mostly a winter sport event, but it's been organized a few times at this stage by the Swedes. So they were ready for a fairly big event. They were ready to make it uh, a success. Ruth, tell me this. Go on. I'm going to go straight into this now because I couldn't figure this out. Every Olympics, it's kind of obvious to me, but who's the scumbag of the week for this Olympic Games? Oh my God, we're really going into it at the start. Mm. Um 
I, 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 I don't know. No one really popped out, Chris. I, but it seems like someone popped out to you. No, I said I couldn't figure it out. They need some. <laughs> I need some help here. I, I mean, like, we, like, if there's no scumbag, we don't have to have a scumbag. I mean, maybe okay. we'll find. Lara, did you find a scumbag? Can uh, I? Can I make a suggestion of the IOC president himself competing and winning a gold medal? Yes. I mean, I'm sorry if that was too politically incorrect, but like, I, I think this would be like a conflict of interest, even though he was completing under a pseudonym. I'm like, oh. yeah. So, 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 so what you're referring to is in fact that 1912 was the first year in which the arts were featured as events at the Olympics, a tradition which would remain until 1948. I think it's a tradition that's could be brought back, but sure look. Um, Pierre de Coupertin was mad for this. The Swedish organising committee less so, but the IOC won out. There were five events, architecture, literature, music, painting and sculpture. Um, they weren't exactly hotly contested in 1912 and all but one of the events only had a gold medal awarded in it. Um, now, as you said, we had a very interesting winner in the literature category, representing Germany with their work Ode to Sport. Georges Hoerod and Martin Eschbach took the gold, but after their victory, it would transpire that this was in fact a pseudonym. And who won but none other than Francis Pierre de Coubertin, which just goes to show that it's nothing unusual whatsoever for the winner to sometimes also uh, be the organiser. Oh, it gets worse. It gets much worse in this scenario because, well, as you said, he he was the organizer and he was really throwing a hissy fit in the build up to this as well. Basically saying to the IOC, if we don't get arts in these games, then he's going to lose interest in the Olympics. The IOC finally gave in to him, even though the Swedes thought it was an absolute joke having the arts uh, in the Olympic Games. Everyone in the arts industry in Sweden didn't take it seriously so they couldn't really find any judges because all the Swedes in these fields didn't support the idea. So all of the submissions for the arts competitions went to an address in Paris which just happened to be Pierre de Coubertin's address in (laughs) Paris. So he was the organizer and he was the judge. What we didn't know at this stage, that he was also competing in it. Yeah, he won the gold medal for literature, but he entered the competition under the two pseudonyms, as you mentioned, George Horod and Martin Eschbach. They were actually Pierre himself and his wife, because his wife grew up in Germany, and she translated the poem into German. It was uh, submitted in both French and German, And there's a few clues that uh, gave away the true identity of uh, these two pseudonyms. First of all, uh, one of the same pseudonyms was used in 1899 when Pierre de Coubertin published an autobiographical novel under that same name. So (laughs) it wasn't the first time he used it. And as I mentioned, his wife grew up in Germany near two towns, which included the names Hochrod and Eschbach. The two surnames which were used. So that gave it all away. And Pierre de Coubertin did, in fact, not just bring arts into the Olympics and judge it, but judged himself to be the best writer at the 1912 Olympics with an ode to sport. And surely, like, a warning sign also should have been the fact that, like, the first sentence of the first stanza was like, oh, look at my giant moustache. <laughs> Have you read it? I haven't. It's <laughs> it's nine it's nine stanzas long. I've got the first one in front of me. Uh, do you want it in English, in German, or in French? Um, like, do we have any other options? Uh. No. <laughs> okay, let's go for English. Let's go for English. Okay. Oh, sport, pleasure of the gods, essence of life, in the grey dingle of modern existence. Restless with barren toil, you suddenly appeared like the radiant messenger of a past age when mankind still smiled. And to the mountaintops came dawn's first glimmer and sunbeams dappled the forest's gloomy floor. What's a grey dingle? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's a great dingle of modern existence. I don't know. Uh, first impressions of the, the first stanza there, Lara? Pretty marvelous. I'm very excited. <laughs> it, it does have a smack of Pierre off it, to be honest. Like, it's, it's yeah, it's super, it's super Pierre. Um, now, we actually had three, we had a couple of new sports. Um, but we had three new multi-sports in the event, including the modern pentathlon, which was a bit of a pet project of Coubertin. In his own publication, he loved writing, like like fair play to him. Um, in the Review Olympique, he said the pentathlon was the holy ghost of sports illuminated by colleagues. And they, the IOC, accepted a competition to which I attach great importance. It was meant to be a modern reinvention of the classical pentathlon, which would have been the long jump, javelin, discus, wrestling and stadium. The modern event uh, would be much more fitting to an early 20th century military gentleman, an event with swimming, fencing, equestrianism, running and shooting. Something I suppose we've come across time and time again in these early Olympopods is the versatility of athletes. So I don't know if the impressiveness of the multi-sport events would really emerge until later decades. I mean, like everybody as a gentleman kind of, you know, did tennis in the morning, then climbed up a greasy pole, then then, <laughs> then, 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 then shot a deer. I don't know. Anyway, Kubertown finally got his wish and the modern pentathlon was included in the Olympic schedule. Uh, there were 32 competitors from 10 nations and Sweden took gold, silver and bronze. Confusingly enough, for me, anyway, for me, who only discovered this an hour ago, um, there was a pen, there was a pentathlon as well as a modern pentathlon taking place during the Olympic Games. There was also the decathlon. They were the three new multi-sport events. The pentathlon included the long jump, javelin, two hundred meter, discus, and fifteen hundred meter. And the winner of this uh, and the decathlon, for a short while anyway, was a Native American by the name of Watahook, Jim Thorpe, a member of the Sac and Fox Nation. He was a proper all-rounder and had already had a hugely successful college uh, basketball, baseball career prior to this Olympics. And at the 1912 event, he won by a huge margin, coming first in four of five events, only falling short in the javelin, which he still like came in at third. For the decathlon, he his point score uh, stood as an Olympic record for nearly two uh, decades. And he also took part in two wow. exhibition matches of baseball. He was welcomed home as a hero. But in January 1913, things began to unravel when it was revealed in the Worcester Gazette that Thorpe was in fact not an amateur. In 1909 and 1910, he had received what was super meagre pay on the baseball circuit. This wasn't uncommon for college players, but what was uncommon was that he didn't seem to have used a pseudonym, you know, like Kubertan. That was his mistake. So my issue here is we've seen this amateur professional conflict raise its head before in the early years of the Olympics. um, And it was a lot easier to be an amateur when you were an aristocratic European gentleman. But this was the first time it so cruelly came to surface. The American Amateur Athletic Union failed to adequately support him in his appeals against the IOC. And I suppose for some context, it would be over a decade uh, before all Native Americans would receive citizenship rights in the USA. And many believe this was one of the reasons why the AAU failed to fight against the IOC, stripping Thorpe of both his decathlon and petathlon gold medals. He went on to have a fairly successful baseball, basketball and football career. And he was type had a bit of a typecast career in Hollywood as well, but he would be battling with alcoholism for the rest of his life, and he died in 1953. In 1982, so three decades after his death and 70 years after his winning of his gold medals, his victories were reinstated by the IOC. And but I mean, here's here's the kind of cruncher. Since then, he's been listed as a co-gold medalist in both events. Um, there is going to be a film made about his life. It was meant to be made this year, but obviously, you know. Um, but this is it caused a renewed interest in him and his achievements. And there is a huge campaign which um, culminated only just two months ago um, in a petition to the IOC to have him declared once again as the sole winner of the 1912 Decathlon and Petathlon. 
Yeah, that was quite the story. Yeah, and he was also, you know, all of that history and everything that followed. But in the time of the Olympics in Stockholm, he was hailed as the greatest athlete in the world by the Swedish king. So that's kind of, a, you know, the bummer with the amateur and professional sports, you know. It's not, sometimes it's not the best athlete who actually wins and has the glory afterwards. Yeah, and as I said, like, I mean, it's it's much easier to be kind of, you know, swanning up when you're a man of means um you know just traveling around the world to shoot at a few targets but you know there was some amazing athletes that we've come across time and time again over the last few olympopods who were poor who who did come from various backgrounds and the idea that they were somehow less worthy because I, I mean I think I read somewhere he made at most by modern equivalents forty five dollars per match, um in nineteen oh nine and uh, nineteen ten, um so it wasn't as if you know this was somebody who was really making a lavish living out of his out of his mm. career. No, he was playing minor league baseball, which is like basically just regional playing in some town somewhere for a, a team that was a feeder to a, a major team. And uh, as Laura said, the, the King Gustav said to him that you, sir, are the greatest athlete in the world. And apparently Jim Thorpe replied saying, thanks, King. But <laughs> people, <laughs> people don't actually believe that. Well, some people say it happened. Other people believe that Jim Thorpe is a bit too uh, shy and and wouldn't say something so brash to a king. But to, to put it into context as well, Martin Sheridan, who has featured in quite a few of the Olympipods so far as one of the great all-round athletes, he himself uh, declared that Thorpe is the greatest athlete that has ever lived and that he'd beaten uh, me in 50 different ways. And even when I was in my prime, I could not do what he did today. And as you said, Ruth, he was a pro baseball, basketball and football player. He was in the Hall of Fame in American football. Absolutely great athlete overall and such a a pity that uh, he was stripped of his medals and his, his prizes like a Viking boat he got from the Russian Tsar after winning the decathlon and uh, a bust of Charles XII from, uh, uh, from the king after winning the uh, pentathlon. You're you're saying he was stripped of his Viking boat, so he was already back in. He was already back in America, and are you saying that someone from Russia came and took his Viking boat? It wasn't an actual boat. <laughs> oh, okay, never mind. Wait, and why I are don't... the Russians giving out Viking boats? Because they're in Sweden. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, come on, Lara, that makes sense. <laughs> like what? Did they just go like hop into the souvenir shop over here and bought something local or what? That would be very cheap from the czar to say, oh, shit, I forgot. I forgot the present. Oh, oh quick, can we Chris, go. we need more information about this boat. Uh, Tell we, us more. Uh, we have to go you to count. You can't just drop in that he got a Viking boat and then not mention anything about it. Tell us about the boat. All right, so basically the czar, he went into Gamla Stone in Stockholm, tried to find a souvenir that was fitting realized that there were no fitting souvenirs so he went over to uh to the port and decided that he'd actually just get him a boat paid for it uh had a sketch taken of the boat as proof and then handed over this sketch to jim thorpe saying here you go i've got you this boat seems legit do you believe me I still feel there's a lot of holes in this story, but yeah, fine. I mean, I just made it up, so of course there is. <laughs> anyway, you want to talk about the modern pentathlon? Give it to us, Chris. <laughs> yes, because somehow this conversation started with the modern pentathlon and ended up yeah, uh, I, like, with I the... Yeah, I explained uh, up until an hour ago, I assumed the modern pentathlon and the pentathlon were the same events, okay? That's why. I actually thought the same. I thought the same until you said it out loud right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is why well, that's why we're here that's why we're here to sort it all out and the modern pentathlon which uh, does exist in its own form nowadays had as you mentioned ruth the, all the medalists were swedish because they had trained really hard for this they had set up training camps for swedish athletes to get good at this new event the best non-swedish finisher finished in fifth place and it's a name that most people, I believe, will uh, know. It's George S. Patton. 
uh, who would later be better known as a very famous U.S. Army general in the Second World War. And interestingly enough, for the shooting part of the modern pentathlon, each competitor was allowed to bring their own pistol because they didn't have a set pistol. Uh, so everyone was allowed to bring their own and uh, and see how they do. George S. Patton uh, used the Colt revolver, uh, if it uh, interests you. There was also a big topic about the horses because, again, people didn't know whether they should bring their own horses or whether horses would be given to the athletes beforehand. So there was a mixture. If you had your own horse and you wanted to use it, you could bring it. Others uh, did not, which is a big change to the modern modern pentathlon where uh, all the horses are assigned randomly to the athletes. Now, this was very much a male-dominated event, not just in 1912, but for a long, long time. However, one woman, or she was more a girl, tried to compete. And this is the story of a 15-year-old British schoolgirl called Helen Priest. She was quite an accomplished uh, rider, done very well at equestrian events both in the UK and the US and so she entered and for the for a short while at least she was the only woman who was set to compete at the event so nobody technically had a problem with her competing at the beginning but then Pierre de Coubertin wrote a letter uh, passing the responsibility over to the local organizing committee basically saying Look, guys, I guess there's no reason why she can't compete, but I don't really want her to compete. She shouldn't really compete. Uh, it was a bit of a hostile letter in which she was described as a neo-Amazonian. What does that mean to you two? Oh, uh, not Grace. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not Grace, but it's very fitting for the man in question. Yes. No, quite a progressive term hmm. to use, I would say, in 1912 as a neo-Amazonian. Hmm. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I would think it is a compliment, I think. I would not, given that's been said by Pierre de Coubertin. But, you know, you robbed him so wrongly that he came up with this kind of creative term for you. So maybe that's already an accomplishment. <laughs> well, he was a gold medalist in literature, so he was quite the wordsmith. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. That's true, that's true. Uh, but can I come back to one thing about the modern uh, pentathlon and what was said about Jim Thorpe and, you know, how he was like this kind of all-round great athlete. I thought it was funny that the modern pentathlon winner uh, actually didn't win a single discipline of modern pentathlon, which was quite interesting to, you know, to kind of be like average in every sport, but good enough to win the gold in modern pentathlon. So I don't know how it goes nowadays. That's not a sport I watch too often, if you two know anything more about it. Well, I, I think I think that's what kind of makes multi-sport events so interesting, is that you do have to be good at every single event. Mm. But, you know, you, you're, you're not going to win. Yeah, well, usually you wouldn't win gold if you were in the specialist event. Or, Chris, are you going to come, mm. up with a, come up with a few stats of people in modern times, <laughs> in recent times, who have got gold in both? Well, uh, I think a good example of this is a Swedish example, uh, Carolina Kluft, who was a very good heptathlete. And uh, this is track and field heptathlon here, so it's all track and field events. But she was uh, a very good jumper as well and could compete at a world level uh, in individual events as well as uh, as in the heptathlon, and that's that's usually the case, I think, with female heptathletes. Uh, for the men, usually they just focus on the cathlon, uh, maybe because there's a few more events. They're a bit more of a jack of all trades and are not necessarily world class at one in particular. I mean, we do have an Estonian here, and Estonia is greatest modern athlete was a decathlete so Laura you should be actually telling us here yeah I was reflecting about him as well maybe one of the most famous Estonians was a decathlete called Erki Nol which is funny for Estonians because his last name means arrow but it's also like javelin throw so you could make the comparison with that which was uh, funny but he wasn't actually good that good in javelin throwing he was actually an expert in pole vault so that was his, you know, his best discipline in a way. And everyone expected him to win that individual sports. But all, of course, he was also a good uh, all-rounder, all-rounder in decathlon. Yeah. 
He's also from my hometown, so I should know more about him. Now, member of parliament in Estonia. Yay. Is he Most good? Is he, is he, he was a better athlete than a politician, I would say. I mean, he did a career in both. I mean, he has a gold medal from Sydney, so good for him. And transferred successfully, you know, all this dual career that we talk about. I feel there's definitely a bonus episode for athletes who turned politicians. Oh, yeah. My favorite is a British Paralympian. Oh, who's that? Uh, uh, Tani uh, Gray-Thompson, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's my favorite. Ah, very good. But it's like to to loop back around. I didn't think I'd have this segue, but we do have a uh, a person who was in the modern pentathlon who would go on to be quite a big, I guess you could say, political figure. George S. Patton, as I mentioned before, he finished fifth overall. And going back to Helen Priest, then after being called a neo Amazonian, was not uh, allowed entry. Uh, there is a bit of discussion there whether it was uh, the organizing committee who said no or whether she just got sick of it, which uh, you can't blame a 15-year-old girl uh, for getting sick of uh, such a thing and not entering in the end. And amazingly, it would be 69 years later until we got the very first world championship in modern pentathlon for women. And it wouldn't be until Sydney 2000 until it was actually in the Olympics which is incredible to think that it was an entire 88 years after Helen Priest almost snuck in there that women would actually get an opportunity to compete at the modern pentathlon. But I'm still, I'm still reflecting about the horses, the local horses. Since I'm living in Stockholm and there's like horses everywhere and it's just like the whole town smells of horses. I don't know the statistics if there are more horses or people living here, but sometimes I'm in doubt. <laughs> Anyways... <laughs> Like the modern pentathlon, like for uh, the first four uh, participants were Swedes, right? So, mm-hmm. but did they get an advantage of using local horses? Could that be the case? I mean, if they had their own horses, I, don't I, know I how guess. Big of a part of place. I don't know if horses can speak Swedish. <laughs> no one can speak Swedish. <laughs> oh God! I don't. I don't. <laughs> don't know where to go from there <laughs> i'd say it's a, it was a happy mixture of a lot of training uh knowing that they were going to focus on this event uh having a bit of lo- a home advantage and maybe they had good guns as well i think uh, having your own gun and having a good gun would have been a huge advantage and also and this like i mean this still is the case nordic nations are very good at the military-esque um sports like it was essentially created for them and they continue to excel biathlon mm. as an example um like yeah i, I think that this this was very much and, and i don't know if we have anything about gymnastics but like the gymnastics was very much done in the swedish style so it, it turned out yeah oh sweden did very well at the swedish style of gymnastics yeah so i'm not i'm not i'm not overly <laughs> like impressed that like sweden took gold silver and bronze in uh, the modern pentathlon. This this was this was their game. <laughs> they did this in uh, the rowing at these games as well. They had multiple events in rowing, and I think it's quite ironic because at the beginning they really tried to have like a budget Olympics. They tried to make it as refined and as uh, basically as tightly packed the schedule as possible. But then when it came to things that they liked, they just expanded upon it. So they had multiple rowing events. As you said, they had like three different types of gymnastics, uh, not just events, but disciplines, uh, including the Swedish style of gymnastics, just so they could rack up the medal. So they really did play to their own uh, advantage. They also excluded boxing, which was interesting. Yeah, what is up Mm. with that? Why did the Swedes exclude boxing? And I read actually that this was like Sweden taking kind of the authority to not allow boxing in their games, that this actually caused the IOC to take more control of the sports program for the later games and actually have a, you know, a bit more authoritative voice when it comes to the sports program and what is included mm. there. So does anyone know why Sweden doesn't like boxing? Uh, they, just, they, they told the IOC that it was illegal in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> Like, uh, sorry, uh, we can't uh, we can't box here in Sweden. It's uh, against the law to hit another man. Uh, but they actually, you could apply for a license, basically, to box. 
if you really wanted to, if they wanted to, they could have applied for it, that it was illegal was, in fact, a lie. But what was not illegal at these games was wrestling. My God, they love their wrestling. And uh, i got to give Laura a chance here to jump into another Estonian hero here in the Greco-Roman wrestling. Wrestling has actually been such a big part of Estonian sport history and I've kind of like now reflected about it uh, again that they've been doing really good. So in the Stockholm Olympics, we had the, the men middleweight uh, and we had an Estonian athlete. And if you read from this of the internet, like the, from the wrestling and it says a Russian wrestler, then it's actually Estonian nationality. So Martin Klein uh, was an Estonian national wrestler so nationality wise because Estonia was still part of the Russian Empire uh, but he was um, he was our first um, Olympic medalist and he's still in the record books and in the Guinness World Records as uh, holding the title for the longest ever wrestling match of 11 hours and 40 minutes which was astonishing especially since he was competing in July in Stockholm what was the hottest uh, day of the games so it was around 30 degrees as well. And it was uh, it was quite astonishing. And uh, this match took place in the semifinal. So he had already medaled. It was now only the question of what kind of color the medal would be. And he was against the world champion, uh, Alfred Asikainen of Finland. And it took them 11 hours, more than 11 hours to finish the match. And that's just incredible. And uh, according to the sources, even the judges or the referees, they got so fed up with it that, first of all, they denied them of breaks and water because they couldn't wait for them to be over. And then they moved the match from the wrestling arena to the horses, where the horses are kept. What is the correct term in English for that? Yeah. Probably in a stable, yeah, so where the horse's training ground is. And then they couldn't breathe basically anymore because they were wrestling in horse shit. So that was the story of how the referees <laughs> tried to get them to finally finish a match. Because according to their rule books, it should have been only an hour that they kept going for. Oh, God. Uh, did he win? He won. This, but this was the semi-final, so he won. But the next day was the final, and he couldn't compete because he was so exhausted. Oh my so, god! Yeah, I mean, we do still have the Guinness World Record for the longest wrestling match, so that's something to be proud of, I guess. Oh but, I, but I thought it—I thought it was very funny that um, in the in another weight category in wrestling, another match also took nine hours. But the referees just said, like, that's done. Like, nine hours is enough. And then they just gave out two silver medals. But this was the exact match when they decided, like, go until then and then see who, who finishes it. Yeah, that was that, that was a final as well. That was a light heavyweight final between yeah. uh, Anders yeah. Algren and Ivar Berling from Finland. Nine hours and then nobody won. Eight hours is fine, but then like you reach nine hours and you're like, ah, no, that's that's just that's it now. <laughs> like surely, it was, surely it at was four the final. hours, surely at four hours, you come up with an I don't know an alternative plan. Or if the matches are meant to be over after an hour, then you take out your rule book and you see what happens after they go out after a one hour. I just feel like they're to blame if this goes on for nine hours. Like judges need to step in. Exactly. But I don't think they had any rules. I don't think this had happened before because there was no regulation. And then they just like came up with it on the fly as it was. Like at the end, at least this 11 hours and 30 minutes, they just changed the rules and said like, okay, these are your last chances. And you go to Parter, which is, you know, when you go down on the ground and you need to turn the other person around, I guess that's how you describe it. And they just came up with those rules on the spot which was kind of creative thinking as well. I have two big problems with this, right? First of all, that the final lasted nine hours, the one between uh, uh, Algren and Burling, and then the judges dis- declared it a draw. And they did have rules stating, though, that the gold medalist had to beat his opponent in order to become the gold medalist. So as you mentioned, Laura, <laughs> they were both given silver. Silver. <laughs> And nine hours and nobody won gold. I mean, how disappointing. What an anticlimax. That's point number one I have here. Point number two, 
And this is why I feel bad for Martin Klein. Because based on those rules, after him uh, wrestling for 11 hours and 40 minutes, him not being able to compete in the finals. So Klaas Johansson from Sweden got gold because Klein couldn't compete. But Johansson didn't defeat his opponent. opponent. So... Very valid. I mean, I should start a petition now. You make a very valid point with the help of Olympipod, hopefully. We will support you. (laughs) And the (laughs) authority of all the Olympics-related things. The only problem with this is that in the second episode, I removed wrestling from the (gasps) Olympic program. (laughs) You did! (laughs) I forgot about that, yeah. On reflection... My point has been proven very right here by this farce, but might not help with our battle to give Estonia uh, its long due, at least, well, joint silver medal rather than joint gold, silver yeah, or I joint gold. I think joint golds are the way to go in a situation like this. But uh, yeah, unbelievable. I just can't believe that there's inconsistencies uh, uh, within the early Olympic Games. I, I just, it surprises me. It shocks me. I hope that changes very soon. Oh, yes. Oh, I think we still have some time to go with that. <laughs> but uh, Martin Klein, um, he really was a national hero after that because, I mean, it was the first Estonian national to winning a medal and the first gold that Estonia ever won as an independent country also came um, soon after and in wrestling it was in 1920 in Antwerp when Estonia was already an independent country so wrestling has a huge uh, influence and like heritage and legacy in the Estonian sport uh, as well so that's cool and he himself Martin Klein he fought in the Estonian war for independence that started shortly after the Stockholm Olympics and then he coached athletes for the 1920 Olympics. And he was offered a chance to compete as well. But he said, like, I will give a chance to the younger ones and kind of um, gave the honors to the others. So I thought that was pretty cool. And they still have a wrestling competition named after him going on ever since in Estonia. Or maybe he was thinking, there's no way in hell I'm going to fight for 11 hours again. <laughs> PTSD. <laughs> What's the longest ever event or bout that you've had Laura because I guess these days uh, in judo or maybe in Uzbekistani wrestling things are a bit more (laughs) regulated but have you ever had a ridiculously long fight or training session yeah I have I've had a really long fight and that was ridiculous I was barely standing Um, but then the judo rules were a bit different Um, so you would have the five minutes that was the normal time um, and every time they like pause the match, they also pause the clock, but it used to be five minutes and then additional five minutes to see who would have the upper hand or who would score. And then you had like the overtime where you fight until someone loses or gets um, some a, a person gets the score. So I think that would have been like maybe 14 minutes or so which is like average is two to three minutes in judo. So that was a very long match. Yeah. But doesn't come anywhere close to 11 hours. That's just insane. I cannot, I cannot comprehend how difficult that would be. I can't. Oh my God. This would be so frustrating. Cause that's in, in the Greco-Roman wrestling, you couldn't trip anyone up and you couldn't grab anyone below the waist. So it was all just like grappling, yeah. like upper body to upper body. And I guess, I mean, never mind nine or 11 hours. After like an hour, I guess your upper body is just completely wrecked. Oh. And I think it was just very boring as well. Because, I mean, no one did anything. They're just like hugging each other for 10 hours or... Yeah, okay, yeah, maybe. Oh, a <laughs> yes. lovely cuddle fest. <laughs> I have a bit of a follow-up question, um, which is that like in these in these uh, first olympopods we've been talking a lot about irish athletes and similarly the medals did go to great britain rather than ireland but we've we've been we've been you know kind of building it up um now something that chris i think mentioned in maybe the intercalation olympopod was or no maybe it was earlier that we kind of once we got independence our ability at winning Olympic gold medals really quite rapidly uh, decreased. How's a 
happy for Estonia since independence. That's my question. I think for Estonian case, it's even funnier to analyze it because we were taking part first as part of the Russian Empire. Then we were independent from 1918 till 1945. And then we were part of Soviet Union until 91. So you could have like these two episodes when we were occupied by another country and then independence again. Um, But I think we did better as an independent country because Soviet Union, for example, was so big and grand and the competition was so high that you just couldn't get into their theme, into their theme. So in a way, it was easier to get to the Olympics from an independent country, small one as well, because you had the quota system. Uh, but maybe the results, yeah, it took a bit bit of time for us to build our like own national sports system. So yeah, but we have some big stars, you know, small country honors and everything. When you really have someone winning an Olympic medal, which is rare, then it's a big thing for a country. Like half of the country would come and cheer them when they arrive to Estonia. For the most part, these Olympic Games have gone off very, very smoothly. Comparison to everything else, it's been a great event. It's been the Sunshine Olympics so far. Proclaimed by the Swedes. Only by the Swedes. Yes, proclaimed by the Swedes. Uh, the Sunshine Olympics were throughout the uh, summer months, throughout the, the few weeks of the core of the Games. There were some events before and afterwards. So over the month and a bit of the actual Olympics, the sun was shining The women were wearing the most see-through blouses. Men were taking off their jackets and collars were loosened. And the Swedes were getting looser. Can I ask, is this a quote from something? Or is this like from your fan fiction of the uh, This is from the games by Roger Goldblatt. Yes. All right, this... Okay, okay, okay. This is a paraphrased uh, excerpt from Roger Goldblatt. Uh, It's coming out, stop my head. I haven't written this down. So that's why it's going a bit funky. But anyway, so the sun was out. Everyone was having a great time. And the marathon was once again the highlight of the games. No matter how much of a disaster each Olympics were, the marathon seemed to draw in the crowds. They captured the imagination of the public. We spoke about the 1904-1908 marathon in depth. And the 1908 one in particular really caught the imagination of the sporting world. So for the marathon in Stockholm in 1912... The entire stadium was full to capacity, 22,000 people. Apparently, it was the only day that that actually happened. The streets were lined with fans all the way out to Solentuna Church, where they turned around and went back to Stockholm. But it was damn, damn hot. 32 degrees, apparently, in the shade, which, Lara, you've lived in Stockholm for a few months. How many days like that have you experienced? Zero. Zero. <laughs> I think this is also fan fiction. 32 degrees in the shade? What happened to global warming and stuff? Yeah, well, uh, beautiful day in the Stockholm sun. Thousands of people out there. There was a lot of, um, you know, there were policemen out there, soldiers lining the streets, making sure that everything was safe. There was no cl- cars in the streets. So everything seemed set for a safe and happy marathon. The Americans had been strong in the recent uh, Olympic Games at this event, but there were two South Africans who were really the favorites coming into it. That was Christian Gitsum and Kenneth MacArthur. They were the serious contenders from South Africa. Uh, you also had uh, Tatu Kolomainen, who was from Finland, whose brother Hannes had won the 5,000 and 10,000 meters at these games. So they were looking for a brotherly hat trick of long distance running golds. And we also had a Japanese runner called Shizu Kanaguri. 68 runners started and around half of them finished the race due to the extreme heat. I'm going to bring this to the halfway mark now where Tatu Kolomainen was in the lead but Gitsum from South Africa had just about caught up with him. Uh, Kolomainen was struggling a bit. And there was also MacArthur, the other South African who was gaining on him. Behind all of them was Kanaguri. And he was feeling a bit dodgy. Right, Ruth? Yeah, as you said, Shizo Kanaguri. He was, he's now celebrated um, as the father of Marathon in Japan. But in 1912, his experience was a bit of a mixed bag. 
It has to be said, he did have a bit of a rough trip to Stockholm. He was 18 days across sea and land, and he only had five days of rest and preparation. And I've seen like a number of kind of references to like, he didn't like the food in Stockholm. And as you said, the conditions weren't great. That being said, if we had Paddy O'Leary back, he'd probably be telling us that the conditions were perfect. But (laughs) by by contemporary accounts, the, the conditions weren't great. During the race, he either lost consciousness or, depending on differing accounts, was either rescued by a local family or wandered disorientated into their garden where they were having a picnic. After filling up on raspberry juice and open-faced sandwiches, he took up their offer of a snooze on one of their beds. Look, as we've seen in the past, taking snoozes during a race isn't actually like a hugely disqualifying act. In fact, some of our favourite athletes in past Olympopods availed of snoozes quite liberally. But unfortunately for Kanakuri, by the time he woke up, um, he was f- far too much time had elapsed and he was unable to rejoin the race. He was so embarrassed, he returned to Japan without informing any of the officials, which led to the Swedish police launching a missing persons investigation. And given these conditions, many feared the worst. I'm just going to bring in my own personal experience here for a moment. Um, I, I, I recently, this week, in fact, fell off a stationary bike, which is something that is impressively difficult to do. And I injured both my hip and shoulder. And had I had the option of silently retreating, filling myself with raspberry juice and open face sandwiches, instead of, as happened, being screamed at to get back on the bike and continue another 30 minutes of sprints, I think I would be a much happier, contented and fulfilled human being. So I get it, is what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I am basically like Shizu at the 1912 uh, Olympics, except I didn't get the option of going on a boat and returning to Japan. He was able to redeem himself, though. Unlike me, um, when he was invited back to Stockholm in 1967 to complete his race, uh, to complete it, he accepted this offer and his final time is listed as 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes and 20.3 seconds, which I think sounds like a pretty fairly respectable time. (laughs) 20.3 seconds. (laughs) And he also fathered six children during this time, which is quite an accomplishment. So you can snooze or have six children. Yeah, very. I'd like to see the statistics on how many children have been conceived by athletes during a race. I'd say it's very small. So fair play to him to do it six times. Uh, Wait, wait. He didn't have six. He didn't didn't have sex with the the woman in the Swedish family. But he left Japan and then he returned. And he had since had six children. I know what you mean. (laughs) Jesus, but, but as I understood, he was also declared a missing person in Sweden yeah. for 50 years, right? Yeah, it became uh, became a bit of an in-joke. Yeah. Okay, there were sightings of him running in the streets, or occasionally people said that uh, they saw him with a beautiful Swedish lady on each arm. <laughs> now, fascinatingly enough, this probably not the biggest headline from this marathon. As I said, as I gave over to Ruth, we've only reached the halfway mark at this stage so we have christian Kitsum in the lead at the moment from south africa and kenneth MacArthur, uh, also from south africa gaining on him they hated each other these two guys right because they were two of the best long distance runners from the same country and didn't like each other not too unexpected you know you have rivals within the same country when it's the same event they really didn't like each other but apparently they had a pact to stay together until the end of the race. So they decided that if they're in the lead together, that they would stay together no matter what until the end and then see who the better man was. However, when Gitsum stopped to take a drink two miles from the stadium, just before a fairly steep climb, MacArthur decided that he was going to keep going and he went on to win the race. He stumbled into the arena and just about got over the finish line. He was struggling a bit, but his little cheeky act managed to get him the gold medal. And pretty soon after that, when Christian Gitsum got in and got his silver medal, there were very angry words uh, shared between the two about the broken promise. And MacArthur's team said that he had actually stopped uh, when uh, Gitsum had stopped as well, but he decided to go on because apparently he developed cramped and wasn't going to go. 
And funnily enough, there's a video of the final stages, also the middle point of the marathon. And you can see the two South Africans side by side being like celebrated by the crowd and given their wreaths and uh, their medals. And yeah, they don't look very happy. There's words being exchanged between the two of them. Lip readers might be able to say what is being said, but they were not uh, not very happy. I think I think MacArthur, he was originally born in Ireland, I think. And I think he was and he was a postman, wasn't he? I feel like there was a disproportionate amount of postmen in early marathons. And I don't know, I feel like this says a lot either about early marathons or about postmen today. I'm not sure what it says, but it, like, I think it says something. It was from County Antrim originally, MacArthur. And yeah, he used to run his 15 mile round. So every single day he'd run 15 miles. So I think that's pretty good training. Yeah, I know. But like, so here's my thing about the, the, the training. You're completely right. However, I'm sorry, there were bicycles in Ireland in the 20th century. Maybe not for Kenneth. Maybe not for Kenneth. Maybe that's why he had to go to South Africa and join the police and become an Olympic gold medalist runner. But look. Where he was given a bicycle. Look, none of this mattered in the end uh, between the two guys because a day later, a 21-year-old Portuguese runner called Francisco Lazaro, died in hospital after a mixture of uh, sunstroke and heart failure saw him collapse during the race. Uh, The ironic thing about this is that uh, before the race, Lazaro had claimed that the course was much easier than what he was used to in Portugal. It turned out that wasn't quite the case. And uh, we had our first official fatality during the Olympics. We spoke in 1904 about the people who died of typhus a few months later after dwelling in the lake for too long, but Francisco Lazaro, the first uh, athlete to die during the Olympics due to an event. So from broken promises between fellow athletes to a promise which was kept, and this was in the men's 1500 meters, in what was described as the greatest race ever run. Ooh. Now, the sad thing is I can't find any explanation about what actually made it good, never mind the greatest. But there is okay. an interesting story in there. And uh, in 1912, we had the final Olympics, which allowed private entries. So individual athletes that were not part of a country's officially selected team. And there was one athlete uh, from the UK called Arnold Strode Jackson, who was one such private entry. He was not selected by the British team for the 1500 meters, but he went anyway. And uh, he was uh, an Oxford boy. And he was first discovered to have a pretty good talent for running in an intervarsity race between Oxford and Cambridge. Now, one of the top runners at the time at this distance was a guy called Philip Noel Baker from Cambridge University. He was a bit of an athletics nut. He trained really hard, but he realized that he wasn't naturally talented. Worked hard, but wasn't quite as good as the carefree, all-round brilliant Arnold Stroh Jackson, who beat him in the InterVarsity race and didn't really like athletics, though, because he's quoted as saying, on the whole, I think I prefer golf, hockey, boxing, and hiking to athletics. Basically, Stroh Jackson was a pretty good athlete. So he hadn't uh, run in any official British race. They had, we had the Triple A's, which were the major championship in the UK. But uh, Philip Noel Baker, who had been beaten by him, said that he has to enter the Olympics. And he promised him that if they both qualified for the final in Stockholm, that he would chivalrously nurse his teammate Stroh Jackson to gold by pacing him as far as he could against the pack of Americans, three of whom were pretty much the favorites to win. So it happened. They both got to the final. They were facing these three Americans. And Phil said to Arnold, just follow me, Arnie. And uh, nobly, Noel Baker did steer him towards the final bend, kept him in a slipstream, and then basically allowed Arnold Stroh Jackson to take the lead, stride off home, and either win clearly or win by 0.1 seconds. Who knows? I'm going to say I'm going to say that it was the 0.1 seconds because that might make it the greatest uh, race ever run. 
but nobody can seem to agree. Nevertheless, it was an Olympic and a British record of 3 minutes 56 seconds. Uh, Noel Baker, the uh, chivalrous uh, pace setter, he finished sixth in the end, but he did end up getting a silver medal in 1920 in Antwerp. And this guy, Philip Noel Baker, is uh, the same one who ended up being a MP in the British Parliament. He was a Quaker pacifist, and in 1959, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his lifetime campaigning for international arms control. That's fairly impressive. On the other hand, the uh, annoyingly naturally good Arnold Stroh Jackson decided he was never going to run an important race again. (laughs) He's just like, ah, I did it once. I won the Olympics. Now I'm going to give up. He ended up serving uh, in the King's Royal Rifles uh, throughout the First World War. He was the youngest brigadier general ever in the British Army. He was then severely wounded three times on the Western Front. But... In good news, he recovered, and by 1919, he had recovered enough to be an important member of the British delegation to the Paris Peace Conference. So, quite a pair of men in that 1500 metres race. I do wonder with all of this, like, military connections, if there was actually a connection with the Stockholm Olympics in 1912 and the First World War that shortly started afterwards, you know, was... You know, the Olympics and all the military connection actually led to this distinguished athletes to have a military career. Or be- oh, I thought you were about to suggest that the Olympics caused the war. <laughs> or, well, OK, like, OK, this might be something that we added out. However, I do wonder because 1912 was originally like meant to be Berlin. Yeah. And I wonder, like, had we had it in Berlin, would like the Germans have been kind of like, do you know what? Grant. Like, I understand there's a lot of stuff going on in Southern Europe and Austria-Hungary is not looking great. I like, there's something kicking off in Bosnia. However, we've just had an absolutely fucking amazing Olympics. Mm. Let's just all chill. Yeah, these guys, they're not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, we had so much fun. We've made so many friends. We can't possibly mm. fight them. something that i think should be on the agenda again 200 throws for discus and javelin what exactly was the 200 throw the 200 throw was the system that you had to throw with both of your hands i mean right hand throw and left hand throw and then the summarized average and that was how you decided a winner it was the only oh oh, wow time they had it in the olympics Oh. I assumed, I assumed when he said two-handed throw that they literally just held it with no. both hands. And... Oh, they used like alternative oh. hand, yeah. And uh, this is how they came up with the winner. And I think that would still be pretty interesting to see and very funny. Yeah. Yes, that would be very funny. Um, I think that's brilliant. I'd love to yeah, see it. Maybe we should put it on the agenda. I'd love to see like one person who's like very right dominant throw yes. like a 30.6 and an 80.1. <laughs> <laughs> That would be me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a left-hander, so I've always been told to just use my left hand. Like never never touch anything with my right. Like yeah, when it comes to sport, it just I might as well chop it off. So having to throw things with the right would not be a pretty sight. But much more entertaining for the audience. mentioned yet is Carl Diem. He's an instrumental figure in the IOC from its early years who would be one of the lead organizers of the 1936 games. Um, now he thought the dressage and other equestrian events were impressive and demonstrated what he called the honorable work of the Swedish military officers. He did question though whether equestrianism should be an Olympic sport. And you know what? I kind of with Diem here. Not about equestrianism generally, and certainly not when equestrianism is combined with running, shooting, swimming and fencing. I've made that clear. (laughs) But when dancing, I do wonder about the need uh, for dressage within the Olympic schedule. And I'd like to go on a little aside, if I may. I don't think people realise how much one has to physically and mentally prepare to attend an Olympic Games. People are always banging on about the athletes and the coaches and the sacrifices they have to make. 
and whatnot, but rarely does anyone talk about the spectators. You're watching easily upwards of 20 hours of sports a day, including shooting, synchronized swimming, obviously a huge amount of weightlifting, sometimes even BMX, and you're surviving purely on IOC-approved beer and hot dogs available within the event complexes, paid with your IOC-approved payment methods. And it's tough. It's tough. And for me... It was eight days into the Rio Olympics with six more days of sports ahead of me, having had three hours sleep the night before, when I stumbled into the Rio Equestrian Centre, holding my first hot dog of the day. And what did I behold but a Swedish horse hopping about to Abba's Dancing Queen? And I honestly think that was the closest I've ever been to a sport breaking me. And as I began to quietly (laughs) weep into my commemorative beer cup, a nice Brazilian lady came over to me to ask, was I okay? And do you know what? I'm just not sure if I was. You don't have those existential crises at weightlifting or water polo. And that would be my main argument for taking dressage out of the Olympic Games. But it's not my week for taking things out of the Olympic Games. Lara, what are you taking out of the Olympic schedule? And what are you replacing it with? (laughs) That was some strong motivation, existential (laughs) crisis about the Olympic agenda. So what what are exactly the rules? I can choose any sports out of the existing agenda to take out. Correct. You, You may take any one sport out and replace it with a full sport or take a discipline out of a sport but you have to replace it with something that also counts so you cannot for example take out the 100 meters and (laughs) replace it with gaelic football not least because this is a podcast that really respects the 100 meters taking out uh, my first thing, I was reflecting about it a little bit, and then I thought that I would make the rule that you could not, not have too many of the same sport, like running, for example. Like, why do we need so many distances of running or swimming? It just doesn't make sense to me. We could just cut it down massively, so I would take, like, half of them out, like Tano style from the Avengers. That was my first thought. But then I, I think I would take out either, I don't want to say 100 meters now, even though like Ruth's argumentation from the last episode makes perfect sense. <laughs> I would take out either golf or shooting. Just because I don't have that kind of existential argumentation as Ruth had about dressage, but shooting just doesn't make sense to me. Luckily for you, golf is already gone. So you can just go straight ahead. You can just go straight ahead for shooting. And I like that wrestling is out because wrestling is very often confused with judo. So now I don't need to like explain the difference anymore. So I'm totally down with that as well. Like their clothing too tight and everything. It's just, you know, men hugging each other in very tight clothing. I might have um, a bit of issues with that. Do you know, it's it's a point a little bit like, let's reverse Pierre de Coubertin. Do men belong in the Olympic Games? I don't know. Let's discuss it. Anyway, sorry. Sorry, sorry that, that's, that's discussion for a different day. That's a discussion for a different day. Sorry, go on. As soon as we have two women in this podcast, this is what happens. This is what happens. So um, I think I would take out shooting if golf is out already. I would either replace it with esports, that is maybe shooting in a different setting, which but it could be too controversial. Or I would put sumo into the Olympics. Sumo. Yes. yes sumo. Absolutely. But that but there's a gender equality problem with sumo because I know nothing about female sumo, but you need to have like the same uh, both genders competing at the Olympics. We yeah. we have four like, years. Those. We have four years oh. to plan that out though. Four years. So like, you know. Okay, we will we will get all the sumo players there. And then I was like, I will ultimately decide for ultimate frisbee and mixed gender. I think that would be my suggestion because it would be cool to see a mixed gender discipline in the and nice to watch. Yeah, I think that's really good. I, there, there's absolutely no mixed gender. So which one are you going for? Ultimate frisbee. Ultimate frisbee. You're yeah. going for ultimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, ultimate. Uh, I can't call it ultimate frisbee because frisbee is the, the brand. Yeah. Ultimate disc sport. 
That doesn't have a nice ring to no, it. No, no, Frisbee does sound good, but I think they, they can't call it that. They just call it Ultimate. Oh, they have no referees in Ultimate. Did you know that? Which is also a nice thing. Mm. Self-governed. Yep. Yeah. More ethics related yeah. and everything. Yeah. Values of sport, maybe. Yeah. If they disagree with the decision, they just go back to the last point it was thrown and they, they go again. And teams award each other spirit points. Ugh. <laughs> Now, for those of you listening, uh, that was a, a sigh of disgust by Ruth. Uh, do not get it confused with anything else. That was a sigh of disgust on the fact that teams award each other spirit points. And at the end of the championship, there is a team that gets the like the most spirited team. Ooh, I got a gold medal at the Olympics for being the nicest team. Ooh. <laughs> just like Harry Potter. <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> Ireland has a chance now. <laughs> so you don't agree with this, Ruth? You don't like Laura's choice? No, I do. I just think that like we're not putting in a, like the the team with the nicest hair and the like friendliest smile. <laughs> <laughs> but we have four years to find it, so we will get there. We're in the Olympics. Ding. Woo woo woo. So we then also just have to ask Lara. What would you have won? I mean, obviously, like, like you could have gone into the wrestling. You would have been up against all the men. But, like, I mean, you're probably fine, like, in the lightweight. But, like, would you have tried to have snuck into the pentathlon? What would you have done? Arts. I think the, the least amount of participants and one charge. So I think I would have had the highest chances of winning a medal. Don't go into literature. You're not gonna. You're not gonna win. Um, <laughs> but the other ones. The other ones, yeah, of course. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think that would be my guess. Most Very opportunistic. All right. Which one would you choose? What are you best at? Sculpting, painting, town planning, architecture. I don't know how they competed in architecture, but <laughs> I think I would give it a try. Why not? Good. ended the Stockholm Olympics a roaring success that would set the standard for Olympics to come next is Berlin 1916 I mean it's not as if an Olympics has ever been cancelled before I'm sure it'll be fine it'll be fine won't it Chris Chris will it be fine <laughs> <laughs>